does worship mean truly? I think to define that well, we need to think back to the time of William Shakespeare when the English language was really beginning to formulate and, and, and we need to think about what it would have meant if we would have said during that age uh, the word worship to our neighbor. And the meaning of the word worship to our neighbor in a Shakespearean uh, time frame, oh great, I'm getting light, um, would have been meaningless because the word didn't exist. Uh, the word that was used at that time was not worship, it was worth-ship. It, it was the exercise of ascribing worth, and it was not only used in the context of ascribing worth to uh, deity, but also to people of renown. The king or the queen would be an individual of, worsh, of worth-ship, uh, in that sense. And so, really, when we come to this idea of worship in a biblical sense, what we need to understand in our modern day is what we, what we are talking about is not a feeling. It's not an experience necessarily, although I think it includes that. It is ascribing to God the worth that He is due. We worship what we find supreme value in. People can worship their car, their job, their appearance, their education. These can also all, your car, your job, your appearance, your, your education, can all be a means to worship, or you can turn them into idols themselves. Worship or worthship would refer to praising God as He has revealed Himself to be by His creation through the Scriptures. You all know that I'm uh, I'm especially with my Wednesday night crowd, um, very fond of the Oxford English Dictionary. And there were pages of notes. And I was highly tempted just to give you all a lecture on the, 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 the lexography of this word, but I'll, I'll be brief. Here are some definitions from the Oxford English Dictionary. The condition in a person of deserving or being held in esteem or repute, honor, distinction, renown, good name, or credit. The condition in a person of holding a prominent place in rank, dignity, importance, high standing, or degree. Or to get or to have worship of, to gain honor of overcoming and winning. And beloved, is not the Lord Jesus Christ worthy of our adoration and worship for overcoming and being our victor? He is, I promise you. And so the question that this psalm, when the psalmist stands before us and says, praise the Lord, he's not saying, make as much noise as you possibly can outwardly. All of your being should be engaged in worship. But primarily, the question is being asked here, what do you find worth in? It's interesting that so many of these words, worthship and ones that surround it, are considered arcane now or out of use. And, and the reason is we don't like to reckon with the fact as moderns that we all worship something. Uh, I, I believe that moderns don't want to talk about worship because they don't want to fa face the fact that we worship the wrong things. You worship your job, you'll get anxious. You worship your children, you'll get disappointment. You worship morality, 
Inevitably, you'll get arrogance. What we find in our worship, beloved, is this fact. What we worship changes us. There's this idea that you can worship how you want to worship, I'll worship how I want to worship, and it really doesn't matter because that doesn't really affect us. But it's not so. You can't come into real worship of the living God and it not change you. It not mold who you are. In fact, the Archbishop... Bishop, ugh, I can say Archbishop. The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, this was his definition, and I think there's actually, Jeffrey, a slide uh, with this definition uh, on it. Yeah, there you go. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Do you not see there that, that coming into contact with the living God in His holiness, His truth, His beauty, His uh, love, and His purpose ultimately changes who we are. It quickens us, it feeds us, it purges us, it opens our heart, and it devotes our will. We can't come and genuinely worship and be the same when we leave. Because when we really come into a, a, a relationship with the living God, it will mold us. And I promise you this as well. If there is an idol in your life, that idol is shaping you. It is molding you. And so the question then is, why worship? Why give God worship? Should we do it because our grandparents tell us? Should we do it because the psalmist tells us? God is so kind in this one psalm to give us the answer to the question of why worship. And the answer to the question of why worship isn't found in us at all. It's found in who God is. In fact, all throughout the remaining portion of this psalm, what we find is the word for. And what the psalmist is doing is he's inclining us, he's pushing us in the direction of who the Lord is. So the first reason that we worship is because of God's goodness. Verse 3, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. Do you remember what God said every time He completed an act of creation? Do you remember what He said? He said, it is good. Everything, beloved, that our God does is good. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because not only are His actions good, but everything in His person is good. His love, His mercy, His wrath, His judgment, His power, all of those things are good. You, you hear moderns say all the time, well, my God would never judge. That's because you only conceive of judgment in probably an arrogant, fallen viewpoint. But when it is God who is doing the judgment, it's always right. It is always good. God's wrath. I, I, this may boggle your mind, and, and it probably should, but God's wrath is good. It, it is, it, it can't be, his goodness can't be separated from His person. Nothing ultimately that God has done could be done better. But we find our we find our neighbors all the time and in our own hearts as they accuse. Uh, we find constant questions of, God, why is the world this way? God, why didn't you do this? And all of that 
is a failure to understand that our God is good. James Montgomery Boyce, I think, helpfully reminds us here that the greatest good that we have as Christians is found in our salvation. It is the same in matters of salvation. That is God's goodness. God's thoughts toward us are good. It was good that He loved us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The way He chose to save us was good. It was good that He sent Jesus at the appointed time to be our Savior. It was good that He called us to faith in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is good that He has called us to fellowship with Himself and with one another in the church. God's ways with us are good. And at the end of all things, at the the time of the final judgment and beyond, the glorified saints will confess that He who began a good work in them has carried it through unto perfection. And the psalmist in Psalm 34 builds on this refrain when he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So why do we worship? We worship because our God is good. Secondly, we worship because of God's electing love. Look at verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel, for His own possession. Here there's this illustration to the choosing of Israel and there's this picture of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being examples of, uh, or excuse me, in, in um, Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul lays out this picture of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob being chosen, and it terminates, and here in, in verse 4 of Psalm 135, on Jacob for a very uh, a good reason. Listen to the words of, of Romans chapter 9, and I think you'll be helped. Not only all, uh, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man. Again, this is in the in the context of election. Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, "The older will serve the younger," and it is written, "Jacob I have loved." but Esau I have hated. Do you see the point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 9? He says Jacob came from the same parents, so ancestry doesn't determine whether or not we are elected, whether or not we are saved by God. Uh, Jacob was the younger of the twins. He was born second. So birth order doesn't determine our election. Jacob nor Esau had done anything, either good or evil, so our actions are not the basis of our election and salvation. It is only by grace that we are saved. And that's why we worship. Also, in verses 5-7, through we see God's sovereign power. For I know that the Lord is great, and that the Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever God wants to sovereignly bring to pass, that it is that He does. And, and part of what is being alluded to here is the, the works of creation. It's interesting how we can take one individual and we can show them these clouds that are out here that are gorgeous, and they'll have one viewpoint of what those clouds attest to them. Uh, you, you bring someone who is not saved and they'll merely say, Oh, those are just clouds. They hold rain. It's moisture. It's science. That's all there is. Some of you will remember Carl Sagan saying, the cosmos is all that there is, or that has ever, or that ever was, or that will ever be. And 
we know as Christians that Carl Sagan is missing the reality behind the clouds, and that is that there is a Creator God. Because the psalmist is the one that said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are not merely there so that a science professor has something to talk about. They're there to declare the majesty and the wonder and the goodness of Almighty God. They're there as a testimony to His sovereign power that when God determines to do something, God spoke ex nihilo everything into existence. That is, out of nothing, everything came. He said it and by divine fiat. It took Him less effort to create all that is than it takes for us to breathe. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful that that is the sovereignty of our God? So when we have people that come against us and come against the Gospel and want to undermine our faith, we can rest knowing that we worship not because our world in this life is ordered rightly, but because our God is sovereign. I was so encouraged over this last weekend as I was away. And David, brother, thank you for preaching. Um, did a fantastic job. I, I, I went so that I could um, sit by the pool and all of that kind of stuff, and I ended up just reading because I had a fantastic book written uh, by a man named uh, Kuiper. Uh, Kuiper was a theologian in the Netherlands. He ended up, think about this, Kuiper was the prime minister of the Netherlands. He was the political exe chief executive for the Netherlands, and he was also at the same time the greatest theologian that had, had, had come to be in, in that particular day and age. And so he writes about common grace, and in that interaction about common grace, he points to uh, the covenant uh, right after the flood with, with Noah in Genesis chapter 9 that says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, with your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And, and what Kuiper tells us in that particular... Now there's a whole divergence of theological opinions on this, but I, what I found helpful was the reality that who is this covenant given to? Is it only to the church? And the answer is yes, because God has not executed judgment on the earth, Christ came and all of the apostles and our salvation is a reality because God has stayed His wrath and judgment in accordance with this covenant. But God gets down to the nitty gritty and He says this is even for the animals. I'm not going to wipe off uh, all of the existence of the animals from the face of the earth uh, either. And what he's saying is, until Christ comes, until my redemption is fulfilled, until I have saved those who belong to me, I will not execute judgment on the earth again. And so there's a way in which we can understand this text to be uh, teaching us of common grace. Uh, and I say all of this in talking about the sovereignty of God because of this reason. The second that you say that God has power over all things in the universe, somebody's going to say, well, then why does He allow human suffering? Why is it that if a good God is really beneficent to His creation and He really is promising, I'm not going to wipe everyone off of the face of the planet until the, redemption, the redemptive work I'm about to do is completed, why is it that He doesn't, he doesn't stop suffering? 
Why is it that he doesn't eliminate those things? And the answer to that is because is found in this covenant. Because he is allowing humanity to go forward for his redemptive purpose in spite of their sinful nature. Beloved, God could stop suffering this very instant. He would just have to take every person out of the world. Because we are the ones who cause the suffering. So, so when people ask the question, there's arrogance in the question. Why is it that I have to suffer? The good question is, why is it that God would ever send His Son to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice for me? Uh, why in the world would God ever do that to m- for me? That is the question that we should be asking. And again, this points to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts that we have a problem with God when really the problem is with us. One of the things, and, and, and this is really where I was driving at, the, the, the things that was so helpful to me and convicting, if I'm honest, in talking about seeing the, the sovereignty of God in the, in, in the created order is that, beloved, every time there's a rainbow, that should serve as a reminder to you and I that God is still working out His plan of redemption. And and there's a whole discourse, if you want to read 600 pages times three, I think there's three volumes of 600. If you want to read them, I highly commend them to you. Uh, There's one section in which he deals with, was there ever a rainbow prior to the Noetic Covenant? Great question. We don't know. That's the answer. Takes ten pages to get there. Um, But what he does say is that our forefathers in the faith would have never come to look upon a rainbow and thought of it in profane terms of only the science behind it. Every time would have been an opportunity for us to take our children and say, do you see? Do you remember the faithfulness of God? He is working about His plan of redemption and no matter the suffering in your life, God is sovereign. Isn't that a joy? Not an ounce of my suffering has escaped the God who has saved me. Next, God is preserving His saints in verses 8-12. through 12. Most of the phrases here in verses 8-12 through 12 appear also in the next psalm, Psalm 136, come back next week. And they're followed with the words, His love endures forever. And so what God is teaching us is that each of God's preserving acts ultimately tell us that God loves us and that there is this electing grace toward us. The psalmist ultimately points back to the history of Israel here to show that it is not because Israel was a great people. It's not because they were holy in and of themselves. It's not because they were politically savvy that they remain on the earth to this very day. The reason that the Jewish people continue to exist is because of God's preserving grace. And friends, I promise you, the same is true for His church. The reason that we are here tonight is because God has kindly allowed us to be. And so in the same way, we have to praise God for preserving us and delivering us and and, and maintaining us in the faith. No one should ever come to a point where they say, I've walked with the Lord for however many years. You should just bask in my glow at how, how great I've been. 
We know that it's not by our human effort. It's only by divine grace that we follow Christ. Next, uh, verses 13 and 14. And these, I think, are wonderful verses. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown. That is, your remembrance. Your notoriety. Your being exalted in worship. We talked about the last time in Psalm 134 how there has never been a time on the face of the earth that God has not preserved a group of worshiping people. And, and he, he, he doubles back to that again here in verse 13. O Lord, throughout all of the ages, for the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. The importance of verses 13 and 14 is that they look to the future. Uh, the previous verses looked backwards. They, they looked over the history of Israel and they said, look at what a fantastic, uh, salvific God we have. Look at this God who while we constantly fall into idolatry throughout our national history, God constantly shows up and moves us in His redemptive purpose. God is so gracious and so merciful back there. And the import in verses 13 and 14 is merely this. The same God that loved us yesterday is the same God that will love us tomorrow and into eternity. His love does endure forever. And, and here is a reality of, of what is being, why, why does it matter that, that He's the same tomorrow as He is today in a psalm that deals with worship? Because what the psalmist is communicating here is that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If He was worthy of worship 2,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago, and he was worth worshiping a hundred years ago. He was worth worshiping two hundred years ago and five hundred years ago. And in those places and times where uh, uh, where we see the Reformation and people uh, advancing the gospel and 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 dying the death of martyrs and all of that is constituting part of their worship. If he was worthy of all of their living and their worship in those ages, then beloved, you know that he is worthy of our worship in our lives as well. He is worthy. And the problem is this. Somebody will think of worship. And does that just mean that I have to be, you know, a bored Christian? Friends, I have never really met someone who actually has experienced a redemptive relationship with God that is bored in that relationship and, and, and flourishing. If we know the living God, we're not bored in that relationship. Ooh, the, 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 the hymn that now I'm going off script, so I'm going to try and get, out, get you out of here on time. But the, the hymn that talks about uh, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The more we see of who Jesus is and how we savor him, the less we idolize the things of this earth, the less that we, we prize our ministries above him or our children above him or our health above him or our approval above him or in fill in the blank whatever earthly thing there is that vies for affection. When we really behold Christ for who He is and the fact that He suffered and died on the cross to atone for the sins of those who would call upon His name, we don't go, oh, there's a bunch of loss and I'm going to have to give up a bunch of things. We say, glory be to Christ. We'll give up everything in this life to worship Him. The point of verses 13 and 14 is merely that He is always worthy 
to be worshipped. And in those moments where we have slipped into idolatry and covetousness and all of the the ways in which we don't worship Him, the problem is not in the object of our worship. The problem is in our hearts that are prone to sin. Verses 15-18 through really deal with, and they're a reiteration of of Psalm 115, verses 4, 6, and 8. Uh, And what what he's doing here is he's contrasting the living God with all of the idols of the earth. And we remember, uh, I, I would make sure at the forefront of your mind, that idols of the heart are hardly ever graven images. And I think a lot of people think, well, I don't have a Buddha in my front living room, so I don't struggle with idolatry. But we can idolize things in our heart that never take the the shape of a graven image. Here in this particular psalm, what is being dealt with is a graven image. In his uh, Treasury of David uh, treatment of this psalm, Charles Spurgeon tells about a missionary named John Thomas. And uh, John Thomas was uh, this missionary who was standing outside of an idol temple. And all of these people were filing in to go pay uh, tribute to this particular idol. And this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is what John Thomas did. You may die if you try this. Uh, he, He waited until everybody was in and then he followed them in. And as they were all standing in reverence to this, this piece of stone, he reached out and he poked the idol in its eyes and he said, it has eyes but it cannot see. And then he touched its ears and he said, it has ears but it cannot hear. And then he continued and he, he said, it has a nose but it cannot smell. It has hands but it cannot handle. It has a mouth but it cannot speak. Neither has it any breath. Now, Try that in India, and you may get killed. You may get stoned to death. But as, it, as God's providence would have it for this missionary, an old, wise Brahmin man who had just seen this individual totally desecrate his idol was brought to a point of conviction of realizing he's right. And instead of getting angry, his response was to yell out in front of all of his friends and neighbors, it has feet, but it cannot run away. The people agreed and ultimately turned in repentance and faith to the living God. Beloved, wouldn't it be wonderful in our generation if people would stop idolizing their work? They would stop idolizing material things. They would stop looking to their health They would stop trying to fill the void that they have for true contentment and joy that can only be found in Christ and they would turn to Him and live. Would that not be our heart's prayer tonight? That people and ourselves first would give up our idols and worship God for who He is. But sadly, beloved, verse 18 is true. Those who make them become like them. So do those who trust in them. Friends, I want to promise you this. If you worship empty things in this life, you also will become empty. 
If you worship vain things in your life, if you ascribe worth to things that have been created for your good, but are not worthy of your worship, you will find in yourself emptiness. Which kind of heralds back to Ecclesiastes, and I I feel a sermon coming on here, uh, of... Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, says the preacher. And what has the preacher gone after? He went after work. He went after wine. He went after women. He went after everything in this life. And he found that it all have fell. And you'll remember that that word have fell is onomatopoetic. And it really, it hafel is gives you the feeling of all of the breath in your lungs leaving. And it's, it's communicating to you in a tactile way. Approach anything but God and you'll be left empty. Our God loves us enough to remind us of that, beloved. Whatever it is in your life, and and we all should come away from this psalm being convicted of some area of our life where we wrestle with idolatry. Beloved, those are the areas where you're empty. Give that thing to God. Come to Christ and live. If you worship God, empty things, you will come away empty. But if you worship the one true triune God, if you give Him the worth that is due His name, you're not adding anything to God, you're merely declaring what already is, and that is that He is of infinite and supreme importance. If you will live a life that way, you will both glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And so we are left in verses 19 through 21, with a call to praise. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Worship is the supreme issue of our day, beloved. And it's why we're going to spend the next now 14 psalms dealing with that topic in the Psalter. And I'll leave you with this. John MacArthur, after he had pastored his church a while and led through the Word, he writes this of what happened in his church as they began to see worship as the supreme issue for their congregation. They began to look at the superficialities as an effort, uh, excuse me, as an affront to a holy God. They saw worship as a participant's activity, not a spectator's sport. Many realized for the first time that worship is the church's ultimate priority, not just a public relations campaign, a recreational or social activity, not boasting in attendance figures, but genuinely worshiping God. They were, MacArthur says, drawn to the only reliable and sufficient worship manual, and that is the Word of God itself. Beloved, I want us to leave this place tonight knowing that our Savior, our God, is worthy of worship in every season, every tribulation, every circumstance of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence tonight broken by the reality that we are idolaters, all of us,
Uh, we desire approval from men. We desire money. We desire uh, um, material things. Our hearts are so broken that we fail to desire you rightly. So, Father, would you do what only you can do and take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and revive in us a desire to be a worshiping church. We don't desire just to have numbers. We don't desire to be thought of as bastions of morality. We desire to be people who worship you in spirit and in truth. Would you make that so in our midst? And would you receive all of the glory because of it? In Christ's name.